building these language models is really expensive and there's only a few companies that can do that. That means even though we have so many applications and users of these tools out there, they more or less all go back to a very relatively small set of language models. And knowing that these, these language suggestions sort of shape our language, will we lose variety in, in language and if everything converges on the same language models? You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Melta Young shares some insights into how artificial intelligence affects the way human beings interact not only with technology, but with one another. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We are excited to speak with Dr. Malte Jung today and hear more about his research on artificial intelligence and the impacts on communication and language. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Malte. <laughs> Thank you so much. So before we dive into your fascinating research on AI and all the work you do around that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and maybe also a little bit about your own path with languages? Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah, the, okay, about languages. Okay, I'll come back, I'll come back to that later. I have to think about that a bit. So, so I'm faculty right now in the information science department here at Cornell. Mm -hmm. My background, though, is in, in mechanical engineering. So kind of my think, if I think about my research, what always interested me, my core core topic of interest is, is actually design. I was always interested mm. in how things are made and often driven by a frustration, how badly things are made and how badly <laughs> they look like. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I started to to set out about that, studying mechanical engineering in in, in Munich, so approaching it more from the from the technical end. And mm -hmm. when and when I speak about design, I'm not not thinking about like a, a, in terms of industrial design or graphic design, thinking about just broadly how we as, as people come to, come to make things and mm -hmm. think about making, making things um, better. And, and then when I moved to Stanford for my, for my PhD, I got more interested in the, the people who are doing the designing, mm. the engineering designers, and try to understand what makes a good engineering team. And my dissertation ended up about being about, I guess you might say in terms of language, I ended up looking at, at emotion expression mm. and yep. found that the same pattern of emotional interaction that predict whether couples will end up in a divorce also tell us how good an engineering team will perform. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very unintuitive to in mechanical engineering to say, hey, actually the most important thing you should think about is, is emotion expression, not the not the, the the technical stuff that mattered less than than how people <laughs> interacted emotionally. And and sort of that sort of started that sort of interest in really understanding <laughs> yeah, I guess you might say language and interpersonal mm -hmm. interpersonal dynamics. Um, and from then on, I went into this question about how how are our interactions shaped by technology. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and that's what I pretty much spent the past 10 years on. Okay. Um, a lot of that focusing on, on robots, trying to understand how they change, how we relate and interact with yeah. others. And then part of it now, of course, the AI stuff that sure. we've been looking into. Fascinating. Yeah. And also, I, I feel like anyone who has ever 
tried to put furniture together with their partner. <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. That's immediately what I started yes, to think absolutely. of. Yes, so, absolutely. Fantastic. <laughs> well, uh, moving on, you co-authored an article that was published in the journal Scientific Reports last year titled mm-hmm. Artificial Intelligence in Communication Impacts Language and Social Relationships. What did your research find? Um, what did we What did we find? I mean, the key the key thing what we found is that that uh, AI uh, changes how we perceive others, and it changes mm. our interaction, the language we use when we when we engage others, and how much how much we like each other after mm. <laughs> after we <laughs> after we use it in mm-hmm. in interaction. That was the key. That was sort of the key. The key. The key finding because we often um, think about how these tools sort of help us, how they make, make us more effective or more efficient. But I think what's often missing from that focus is really when we use it. How does it change how mm-hmm. yeah, how we interact with others and relate to them? Mm-hmm. And and uh, and that's what we what we we set out to find out to really understand. Okay, what does do these things do to to yeah, our interactions mm-hmm. with other people. And in this particular um, research project, um, you looked at non... No, you looked at text-based communication, like typed yeah. communication, right? Mm-hmm. Can you extrapolate, like, what... Are there implications that you can draw from your specific research about spoken communication? Do you think there might be a difference from typed communication? Um, I mean, like most of our studies that we've done done before um, explored really how how physical robots change how we interact uh-huh. with with others. And I mean, the effects there are we can we can see that. Happen. For example, in one study we had um, explored, we asked two people to build a physical a physical uh Tower, tower with a with a robot out of Jenga blocks, and okay. the robots. The robot's task was to to um, pick up the blocks from a from a box and hand them over to people. Like mm-hmm. it was sort of mimicking situations that we imagined when people might work in a in manufacturing with a robot, mm-hmm. and the robot helps them accomplish their task. And and sort of people built that tower, but the thing was that that uh, the robot then had to make a decision whom it. Gives oh, yeah. the block to, uh-huh. uh-huh. and what we wanted then to see is about hmm, does it make a difference if the robot prefers one person or the other gives mm-hmm. the, gives one more and and yeah and we found that if if the robot gives one person more of these blocks people people like each other less hmm. um, but they oh, were yeah. also uh-huh. it created these changes in in language and and interaction there was sort of this one this one moment where the robot picked up a block and this one participant kind of seemed to anticipate that she would be getting that block and mm-hmm. reached out with her hands to to receive it. But then the robot gave it to the other person, <laughs> which <laughs> created this really awkward, uh-huh. awkward sort of moment where you could see it changed the whole ex- expression. as this, this tense, tense smile and then this awkward pulling the hand uh-huh. back. And then that created this also awkward moment for the other person who then had to yeah, sort of it, figure yeah. out like, oh, what the heck yeah. do I do with this now <laughs> and figure out to check in then with the other person. Are we still friends here? Are we mm-hmm, still okay? Mm-hmm. And and so it's more like these, these way in which these machines often subtly mm-hmm. change the whole dynamic yeah. of an interaction and sort of opportunities they create. Yeah. Well, and I think that'll be really interesting because I do think I mean, I don't know if we will 
be surrounded by physical robots in the near future. I don't know what your take is going to be on that. <laughs> but certainly um, AI bots. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, the all the chat GPTs out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that impact on social dynamics and as, as people interact with those bots, this is, yeah, this is, it, it's an interesting area of it, research and constantly a, changing, I bet. It's a crazy space. I mean, there's, uh, there's a, a ton that's happening. I mean, these things move so, so fast. Mm -hmm. I mean, just another example that came to mind about how maybe these more language system or bots, mm -hmm. um, bots might change how we interact. There was an article on Medium, this online magazine years mm -hmm. ago uh, that was titled something like something like um, Alexa is marvelous, but it turned my kid into an asshole. But no matter, leave that out. But uh, but sort of this this article told the story about about this. Um, uh, father who brought this technology mm -hmm. in the home, and then as adults, we we know that these systems mm -hmm. work best if we use very simple language. So we say, Alexa, play this. Alexa, mm -hmm. buy that. But then his his son picked up on that huh. language yeah. and then oh, used it with others and say, Mama, get me milk. Papa, do this. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and so, <laughs> which of course is we 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 don't respond well to that mm -hmm. to that language. Yeah. And, and so the interesting thing I think often is that people when they build these systems. They don't think about that the way we design these technologies can sometimes implicitly set norms of 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 conduct or mm -hmm. of interaction that then have social implications that go beyond the interaction with the system. Mm -hmm. So if it might well, yeah, if you interact like that with the Alexa, but then then yeah, it's not just that. The interactions around it are shaped in really mm -hmm. complex ways mm -hmm. too. And yeah. that's the kind of stuff that I get really um, interested in, mm -hmm. yeah, and and with these now LLMs, I mean, this mm -hmm. is when it gets yep. really complex. And for me, often these things that are interesting is the less sort of the you're talking with a with a robot or a chatbot in mm -hmm. language is more these these subtle ways in with these in which these systems might sort of nudge our interactions in a mm -hmm. way we're not yeah. really uh -huh. aware of, yeah, and yeah, yeah. that's why there's smart replies got so interesting when they got mm, introduced right. like almost like, eight years ago or so with Google Allo that's mm -hmm. not even existing anymore that messenger that was the first one but but it sort of really was sort of a glimpse ahead of what these mm -hmm. large language models do 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 now because we just integrate them into our our language um, and and then it sort of does stuff that we're not fully yeah. aware of. Well, and you, uh, the, those smart replies were a, a, a big part of the research yeah. in that in that article. Can you actually um, briefly explain for our listeners what smart replies are? Yeah, so smart replies, I think, really came up at the time. That was, I think, in 2016 mm -hmm. when Google released Google Alone. That was a messenger, like any any messenger that had this smart reply capability. And smart reply are pretty much algorithmically generated response suggestions. So in Google Allo, it, it, it looked like you, you, typed a, you typed a message or you received a message and then you, um, you had sort of three little little suggestions what you might, might answer. So someone says mm -hmm. hello to you, then the options might be an hi, how are you, and a smiley or something. And then you could, rather than typing, you could just click on mm -hmm. it. I mean, the more current versions of that is in the email is that you have a... Yep. A, a sentence that's there and you can just accept it or a sentence completion 
Um, um, and it's pretty much the same as if you're asking ChatGPT to draft you yep. an, an, an email. Mm -hmm. But these were sort of these these short short replies, and the and the thing at the time that really got us interested in smart replies was uh, sort of yeah that the focus the way all the research was focused on even was on this idea that how do we design these smart replies so that we can make your your writing more more efficient and effective mm -hmm. so because they were designed because it's tricky to type on a small keyboard sure sort of it was all with that in mind and and we were looking at these and thinking about okay what what does it actually do mm -hmm. to our interactions mm -hmm. when i'm using language that i might not naturally write even yeah. if it's good enough and and that's what sort of started that research in 2016. Took mm -hmm. took a long time to get it sure. to get it published. Yeah, and, uh, but uh, the funny thing is now it's even more relevant than then. Yeah. These, these <laughs> kinds of systems are so ubiquitous. Yeah. Well, you were ahead of the times. I like <laughs> it. So in a Cornell Chronicle article about your work, you mm -hmm. were quoted. Technology companies tend to emphasize the utility of AI tools to accomplish tasks faster and better, but they ignore the social dimension. We do not live and work in isolation, and the systems we use impact our interactions with others. So, mm -hmm. what impact do you see for education, and, and how can AI support communication and learning? Yeah, I think I think the the... For education, I, th I think in general, I think there's always what we found is this impact on on both language and perception and and and, and interaction. I think mm -hmm. the key thing is what I said is like you use these things and you it might nudge you to use language in a way that you wouldn't use otherwise. For example, mm -hmm. what we found is that these Google generated smart replies, um, the one that the standard Google algorithm produces, are slightly more positive in tone hmm. than what people normally would write. And so, so if you're using that stuff, you 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 use friendlier, let's say uh -huh. friend, friendlier language yep. than you wouldn't. And and so it um, that kind of shifts then how others others um, others see you. We found that there are two things going on. It's like when people suspect you to use that stuff, they see you in a negative light. So it can huh. it can oh, yeah. it can it can kind of backfire. backfire. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it can go both ways. But it, it means on the one hand, it means that that whoever when you have control over the language, you can nudge people you have control over the interaction and over the over the perceptions because we found when we created artificial smart replies with a more negative tone, the language turned more negative and then the perceptions turned more mm -hmm. negative mm -hmm. as as well. And sort of for for educational learning, I mean, le learning is always so depending on dependent on on interaction and mm -hmm. how our conversations go. Is this? I mean, if our our tone of interactions turns hostile and contemptuous, there sure. is. We won't learn from each other anymore. It's like mm -hmm. <laughs> whatever yeah. goes in my ear, one ear comes out, yeah, yeah. comes out the yeah. the other. And so I think kind of learning is is really dependent on on the quality of our interaction and mm -hmm. and and language. So yeah. I think that that is for me would be one one part to to look at. Yeah, yeah, and you know I think it'll be really interesting to see too with all these LLMs what difference. Or, or how do cult differences in cultural background, how does that play in, yeah. in factor into that, right? We approach this from a, a language learning and, and you know, using yeah. different languages perspective. And that's something that I'm 
wondering about, you know, does does ChatGPT have a different personality in French than it does in German than it does in English? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that would be really interesting to see too. Like, what's the, yep. what are the social dynamics there, and yeah. is it more friendly or less friendly in one language than in another? Yeah, yeah, those are fascinating questions. I think there's some that people are starting to explore mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that they, all these questions on culture. And one of my colleagues, René Kiselczyk, mm-hmm. has, has has done some work on mm. on that um, really really cool stuff. I mean, one of the things we wondered wondered often is is the larger impact of language on these systems when when um, because right now at least it, it that might that might change but right now building these language models is really expensive and there's only mm. a few companies mm-hmm. that can mm-hmm. that can do that that means even though we have so many applications and users of these tools out there they more or less all go back to a very mm. relatively small set of language models yeah. and and so for the question kind of we often asked ourselves after that research knowing that that these these language suggestions sort of shape our language, will we lose um, sort of the the vari- variety in in language? And yeah. If everything converges sort of on on the same language models that are trained on huh. West on a Western yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. <laughs> predominantly white male data data yeah. set, yeah. Um, do we do we lose do we lose yeah. cultural variety in how we express ourselves? <laughs> so um, it's the the anti. Tower of Babel. <laughs> the Tower of Babel. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, it'll it'll be quite fascinating to see where this all is taking mm-hmm. us. Hmm. Wild. You also lead the Robots in Groups Lab, which focuses on design and behavioral aspects of human-robot interaction in group and team settings. Uh, apart from the landing page of that lab's website being amazing, uh, tell us more about the work you do there. Oh, <laughs> that's that's nice that you say that. We just had a meeting in my lab saying we haven't maintained that lab site yeah. website in more than five years. It's so outdated. I mean, I still well, like the not to us the, the, <laughs> the picture we created with my then um, at a um, researcher with Hamish Tennant created that that um, that graphic that yeah. you're just looking yeah, at, yeah, yeah. and yep. then the logo we put together. <laughs> that was that was that was fun. I still I still I still like that. We're actually just in the process of of changing our our lab name to uh, to to in, interplay as the as the theme hmm. um, because it's well we have done a lot of robots and teamwork. We moved away from that. But, but going back to your question, sort of the the topic, the lab was sort of started with this idea to understand how how robots change how we work um, and interact and collaborate in in teams and it was really started with this motivation that when i came from from a study of teams into this research community that studies robots mm-hmm. um and, and the human computer interaction community to a to a larger degree um there was sort of what I what surprised me was that almost all of the work focuses on interactions between a single human and a single robot. Mm-hmm. So if, and in that research community, we have we have learned so much about like how the psychology of human robot interaction, how the makeup of a robot, how it looks like, how it behaves, shapes our cognition, our responses, how we think about it. And we've also learned how to better and better even though <laughs> they still don't work well, they design these machines mm-hmm. better to be yeah. pleasant and easy to interact uh, with. But 
But for me, it was looking at having studied teams. I know that we we don't live alone. We mm, are sure. we don't work alone. There's always people around us, and yeah. and we rely on on these interactions. And so, yes. the question came up: is like, why is no one studying how these machines uh, um, shape shape these kind mm-hmm, of interactions? Mm-hmm. Shift the focus from the interaction with the machine to the interaction with the people. So that that was the the general idea where that lab name come from. Uh, came from and the direction for the lab. And so then we studied this in all sorts of different ways. I mean, we did field work where we actually went out for several years and and studied actual surgeons performing surgery with a mm. robot. And mm-hmm. we compared that to traditional laparoscopic surgery oh, and, wow. and learned about the really complex way in how, how this surgical robot transforms all the interactions huh. Um, in the operating room, it changes the entire sensorium of, of surgery uh, and then learning how, how the sort of entire team sort of compensates for all that changes uh-huh. and builds new routines wow. and, 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 and ways, of, ways of working. Huh. Um, another part of the lab has been more kind of behavioral science psychology type studies mm-hmm. where we bring participants in the lab, sit them around a the table, and then there's a robot that does, does something like in an early study we had robots that intervenes in conflicts and calls calls people out when they say something <laughs> bad <laughs> and then we tried to see okay what happens then um, and uh, um, th- those are kinds of studies we did and then we had a part of the lab where we tried to imagine um, how robots might be useful in helping us build better interaction dynamics. Mm-hmm. And this is an area that where we are thinking about robots as potential social catalysts that in some way can not just actually be better with each other. That's another more a design-focused space that we have explored in the lab. This is fascinating. Yeah. This is, this is wild. You know, sometimes we get so hung up in our own little worlds and the, the work that we do and the little research that we do that... It's just so fascinating to me to to hear these types of of projects and and the impact yeah. they they have. Mate, we would be remiss not to <laughs> ask you, as an expert on robots and human interaction, yeah. should our listeners be preparing themselves for the robot uprising? <laughs> oh well, I think that's a question always people in robotics get. Get, <laughs> get and we, we have asked this question yeah. of, of many um, <laughs> AI adjacent yes. uh, knowledgeable guests. guests. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So we're tickled to to hear what you uh, have to say to this. I have to say, I never think about that question much because wow. I think. Okay. Well, because what robots are so ubiquitous in your life? I mean, they're all around. And we always. I mean, the way I'm so thinking they have about risen already. <laughs> They have risen in a way. They have risen already. The way I'm thinking about a robot is less like the, you know, these these. Often when we think about robots, we have this idea of this humanoid robot with eyes and a, exactly. and a body, or the Terminator in the yeah, in the course. negative case or whatnot. But like for me, <laughs> when I'm thinking about robot, I'm thinking more about a a, a washing machine or a mm-hmm. or a smart speaker. I mean, an autonomous this car, kind mm-hmm. of more this thing about like how our our everyday devices through their their capabilities are more becoming robots that can respond to us and and they're there and are already and they are so badly designed and i think that's more <laughs> what we 
what we should be worried about. Like I was, I was an example. Is is this is not the robot uprising, but this is these these ways in which these machines are out there. I was on sabbatical last year, and we were we spent the year in Vancouver, um, mm -hmm. a lot of it. And Vancouver is full of Teslas. Mm -hmm. and, and this one evening, I was pushing pushing my bike, walking my bike through the city, and and it was walking past this Tesla, and then suddenly the car was flashing, flashing the lights mm -hmm. at me. And I got so <laughs> offended by this. Yeah, I was yeah, really yeah. pissed. And I was thinking, <laughs> what what expletive here is 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 flashing their lights at me mm -hmm. when I'm walking here with my bike? And I look at the car and there's, of course, no, no one in there. Uh -huh. um, and then I thought, okay, it must have triggered some mm -hmm. sort of safety. Yeah, proximity, whatever, yeah. Proximity mm -hmm. alarm, yeah, safety yeah, yeah. thing. And, and then, okay, I tried it out with the next Tesla. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, if I walk in the right <laughs> angle and the right speed, the thing flashes its light. And then I... Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and then I peeked in the car and then I noticed the screen, the screen goes on and shows huh. this... this um, this uh, image of this glowing, glowing orb, um, and and with this with this text underneath that says "Sentry System Activated." <laughs> so it's this really hostile, yeah, no hostile kidding. stands. Yeah, that, better be that careful. Or it's it'll... taken, and and I did some research later, and I mm. found out that actually when that triggered the system, actually video records you and sends a video to the owner, which is already feels like very invasive. No but, kidding. Yeah. yeah. But huh. also the I found that the original image they used what that uh, was that for that screen of Hal from Kubrick's Space Odyssey. <laughs> <So> the, <laughs> they, <laughs> they used an image of an AI that killed an entire space crew as mm -hmm. the appropriate thing to represent that car. And I was thinking, uh, like what again? Kind of, you know, it might make sense for yeah. If I'm the owner of the car, I want my car protect protected. Yeah. But what does that do to the social environment yeah, it creates no outside? Yeah. Like such a such a hostile hostile stance. And actually, later I looked online, and tons of people had posted videos of that. And there was one video on YouTube <laughs> from one person. An, an owner of a Tesla with a plea to Elon Musk to let them switch off that feature yeah, because no kidding, yeah. he had recorded how someone at night, kind of his car had done that to a person, could show the video of a person walking by, the lights flash up, and then that person ends up vandalizing the Tesla uh, in reaction. Because, totally, yeah. And uh, so you create not hostile behavior based on this stuff. And Absolutely. So, yeah, long, long answer. But yeah, I don't think... <laughs> Yeah, this is, I think, what we should worry about is more like, okay, what's the reality we are already creating with these mm -hmm. machines that behave in ways that are really often not conducive to a good social climate? Yeah. No, I, I love that answer because it's uh, it reflects, I love it because it reflects how I feel about, mm -hmm. the, uh, about you know, the idea, even though we sort of joke about it, of robot uprising because it's <laughs> that it's not the technology it self that I fear it's the reaction that it spurs from people and yeah, yeah I think that's that's uh, very very sharp very prescient yeah uh, so what uh, other projects are you currently working on and where can our listeners find out more about your work um ha <laughs> What other projects are we working on I, uh, right now I mean our lab is 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 broad there's still a lot of work on 
on on robots. One of my students, she's trying to understand uh, a, a really cool work on on this little bit of question about why social robots are it was or, or let let's say different. This she she works on a research project that started with this question: Why do these social robots, these cute small little little ones, mm-hmm. are successful in in Japan, but they've all failed here? I mean, there was this several startups in the U.S. that that created uh, these small uh, cute r- robots that interact you and you know, play that kind of I don't know talk your kids to sleep and whatnot mm, and mm-hmm. and and uh, they were not successful and in. In Japan, there are several examples of those robots that where people spend thousands of dollars on, and they and they work. and hmm. And so she spent several months of uh, field work in Japan trying hmm. to understand wow. that. And what she walked away with, sort of the 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 story, I thought was really cool because right now, this question of of how do we make sociable sociable robots is one of really yeah. the the big questions of the of, that founded the whole field of human robot interaction mm-hmm. and 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 that work has always focused just on on the robot like sociality was this idea mm. is, is to be found in the robot in how we design it how it looks like whether it looks cute what yeah. materials we use and how it behaves um, what it does and how it learns over 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 time and what we found in Waki Kamino who led the study, through her work in Japan, was that we should actually, or was this in, it was this insight that we've looked for sociality in all the wrong places. It's mm-hmm. not about the robot; it's about the entire ecology that robot yeah. is embedded in. Yeah. Yeah. That the, the robot is social because of the communities that are built around it, around the interactions it 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 affords. And these companies in Japan that built these machines. They, they are design spaces, not just the robot. They curate all these interactions carefully. Mm-hmm. They curate online spaces. They curate events and people form communities. And sort of the, <laughs> the, uh, um, the, the, also what makes these machines sort of take on meaning or, or, or help create meaning in people's lives is not in the interaction with the, with the machine, even though there might be some, but it's a lot more in the meaning that's created by all the new relations people form and interactions mm-hmm. people have with other with other people. So that that's one line of work that's moving forward that I thought was really mm-hmm. really cool to understand yeah. these machines in their ecology and 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 what happens there. Um, another bigger space what we're trying to explore is more methodologically about how we're trying to do our work that's moving away from more uh, from doing this more psychology work in the lab to going out more in the field and doing more nice. work um, through through design where we kind of take take um, an approach that uses design as a research method kind of this is this idea that that there are things we can only learn about the world when we start pushing buttons and mm-hmm. Cha- mm-hmm. change things sure. and and this is an area that's exciting for me um, methodologically and then Still interested in understanding robots in in machines more in the field. One of my students, he he does that. We have a project that's led by my colleague Angelique Taylor at the Tech Campus at mm-hmm. Cornell's Tech Campus, and she's working with people at at the medical school in the hospital 
to build robots that help uh, teams also in the emergency room. Oh. And built, she built a robotic crash guard. And so we're trying to mm. understand then mm. at the same time doing the more social science of how do these teams work? How yeah. do they work with technology? But then also how do we design a machine that helps them mm -hmm. in their work and understanding what this machine does? Um, that's That's part of the space. But right now the lab is really kind of mixed. Like we have people from coming more from engineering with a technical interest and I have an um, an artist from South America in the in the oh, lab cool. then mm. one of my students has a philosophy background mm -hmm. so it's a whole mix and then fun mm -hmm. to see what sort of yeah hap happens there that's also why I decided okay we've we're shifting a little bit from that more narrow focus on robots and groups and teams to mm -hmm. more let's focus on Interplay is what we do mm -hmm. because it we we like that term because everything always boils back to uh, yeah the interplay whether it's between people with each other people and machines sure. and I like that, that sense, yeah. notion of play rather than mm. interaction mm -hmm. because I think what we try to do in the lab is or because I think learning happens best in a mode of play, in some form of mm. playful engagement. And and that's kind of what we sort of aspire to in the lab, to to approach research yeah. from a playful perspective. That's awesome. Great. Well, this is fascinating. I could I could sit here and, and listen <laughs> to your fun. stories for forever. This is really amazing work um, and impactful work and, and work that will literally save lives in the future. So thank you to you and all your colleagues for doing this amazing work. Thank you so much for having me. But before we sign off, we would like to ask you to share a word in a language that you speak, you love, you are learning, you may want to learn, that does not exist in English, but you wish it did. Oh, yeah. I, I saw that in your email today in the morning. And I was like, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, my God, what do I think of? I mean, I, I, I thought immediately of of two and you can pick which <laughs> which one the one was uh it made me smile i hadn't used that in a long time here because i never hear it and a friend of uh, a friend on facebook had posted this this picture of a piece of um cotton cotton wool mm -hmm. uh a, a, just a clump and then it was in a in a glass box on a pedestal mm -hmm. Um, and then all he wrote underneath underneath was was kunst, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I and I and I loved and I loved this and and sort of uh, it's a tricky it's a tricky word to 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 describe. I mean, literally, it's just a, um, a Swabian mm. or Palatine pronunciation of the German word kunst, like for art, but. But it takes, it's not just a different dialect. It's sort of the way we, at least we used it when I was little, it was more, it takes on a different meaning. And if we, I don't know, <laughs> used it in a way to describe, describe art that tries too hard. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. It's okay. a bit related maybe to, to kitsch, but not, uh, uh -huh. not quite. It's like maybe we should take kitsch, but kitsch that pretends to be high art and serious mm -hmm. so it's a, a pretension <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's a pretentious. i don't know how you would describe kunst but and it was actually spelled with sti yeah yeah kunst, kunst. Yeah, well, and, and d and d at the end oh, oh, oh <laughs> even better okay <laughs> that's awesome but yeah the other word i was thinking about was that i like 
um, is eta potato. Oh, yeah. Which, which mm. is maybe also sort of a pretentiousness related uh, term to it's a little oh, bit a condescending term maybe to describe a good one to describe people who take themselves very very serious and uh-huh. and uh, also sort of exhibit a, a, a pretentious mm-hmm. <laughs> pretentiousness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I haven't thought about uh, it in forever. Yeah. I like that. It's just a sort of one that sounds uh, as a, good. It sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, eat a potato just sounds good. <laughs> awesome. Very true. Well, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for speaking of language with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This, this is a lot of fun. <laughs> it is. We think so. Indeed, so we do. <laughs> Tune in next week to hear about art, literature, and visual culture of Cuba and the Cuban diaspora from the new program manager of Cornell's Latin American and Caribbean Studies program. Until then. Auf Wiedersehen. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu. And follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.